0: And welcome to the Chicago Humanities Festival podcast. The festival brings together leading voices in arts and culture, journalism and politics, and science and technology to help you grapple with big questions and go beyond the headlines. Today's conversation is from the program Shannon Lee on Bruce Lee's Legacy, which was live streamed on October 30th, 2020. You can explore hundreds of videos, check out upcoming events, and support this free content at chicagohumanities.org. Now you'll hear from Natalie Cohen, who introduced this program.
1: Hello and welcome to today's program with Shannon Lee and Nancy Yoon as they discuss Bruce Lee's legacy and what we can learn from his vision. My name is Natalie Cohen and I'm the senior programmer at the Chicago Humanities Festival. I wanna thank our captioner for making this event more accessible all digital events have closed captioning, which can be controlled through YouTube. You can learn more about accessible services at chicagohumanities.org access. This week's programs are presented with the support of Fifth Third Bank. You can learn more about upcoming events at chicagohumanities.org. Please enjoy the conversation between Shannon Lee and Nancy Yoon, but before we begin, here's a look at the trailer from Season 2 of Warrior, streaming now on Cinemax.
0: For the purposes of this podcast, we will not be sharing the audio of the trailer, but there is a link to the trailer in this podcast episode's description. Now here's Nancy Yoon and Shannon Lee. Hi, Shannon. So Hi nice Nancy. To you.
2: I'm excited <laughs> to be here. I'm a huge fan of um, as so many of us are, of your father, Bruce Lee. And I remember when I first heard about Warrior. Um, which is now in its second season on Cinemax, and you are an executive producer. And I remember hearing that it was based on the writings of Bruce Lee, and I was so, so excited. Can you <laughs> tell us the origin story of uh, Warrior? Yeah, sure. Um, and,
1: and lovely to be here with you. Um, so. My father created uh, the treatment for Warrior. He had um, been working on a creative treatment during the late 60s for a TV series that he could um, star in. You know, he really had this goal of wanting to um, have there be authentic representation um, for um, an Asian man and Asian storytelling in Hollywood specifically, and so, once the Green Hornet was cancelled he started working on his own ideas for for something like this that could be a vehicle for him and um he wrote this treatment and he went in and he pitched it to Warner Brothers and and then they said well you know uh we'd love for you to star in something and let's work on something and in the end um they they uh decided that they couldn't cast him because he was Chinese and they just felt that uh, American audiences would not accept a Chinese lead and they said things like they thought he had a, uh, a, an accent that made it difficult for him to to understand and all this sort of thing, which is you know, <laughs> which is uh, an excuse, I suppose. Um, but uh, he seemed to be understood just fine in the other, in the other think, projects that he did where he spoke English. So anyway, um, and, and then the treatment just went in a box and it just stayed there. Um, and then of course, as we know, he went on to Hong Kong to make the movies and then he passed away. And so the treatment just stayed amongst his things Uh, for many, many, many years. And then in late 2000, when I stepped in to start looking after my father's legacy, my mom sent all of the boxes of his things to me. And I um, started going through them little by little and I came across the treatment. And there were several drafts. There was like the finished final treatment but there were several drafts of it and notes and things like that as well. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've heard this story my whole life. Um, and here's this thing that I've always heard about, but at that time, you know, I was just stepping into sort of like, uh figure out what needed to be done um, uh, to know what it meant to look after a legacy and all that sort of thing. And I was not a producer or any of that. I had done some acting, but I was not ready to just like march into Hollywood with this (laughs) this treatment (laughs) and say, we should make this and have nobody listen to me. But um, so I just went about my business. Um, I did gain some, um, you know, some mild producing experience over that time. I did attempt to get some projects going, but really, Warrior uh, came to fruition because Justin Lin, who's, who I had pat- crossed paths with a few times, um, called me up and he said, You know, I've heard this story, this Hollywood lore, that your father created a TV show and that it never got made. Is that true? And I said, "Um, yeah, in fact, it's a hundred percent true. And he said, you wouldn't happen to know where that that treatment is, (laughs) would you? And I said, yeah, it's right here. It's right here in um, my office, I have it. He was like, oh my gosh, can we get together? Would you have any interest in making it? Can I read it? And so we got together and I shared it with him. And I have to say like, this show would not be what it is without Justin Lin because A, he is an Asian um, um, a creator in Hollywood who has, you know, uh, made, a, made a mark for himself, right? So he has some, some um, influence. And then he's also a good guy. And he's a, a real and dedicated fan of Bruce Lee. And he said, you know, first of all, this treatment is so good. It's really well-written. And secondly, we should make this, but only if we can make it as your father would have wanted in real and true dedication to his legacy. And I was like, you know, ah, music to my ears. (laughs) So he really was a great partner, a great collaborator. He really cared about the project. And it was because of him that we were able to Make this show uh, be as fantastic as it is.
2: So, this is Justin Lin who did Better Look Tomorrow. I remember that was a huge uh, Asian American breakout indie film. And, yep. and he's also directed Fast and Furious and um, uh, Star, Trek, Star Trek, which <laughs> I'm a yeah. Trekkie. And so, <laughs> so am I,
1: by the way. <laughs>
2: <okay>. <laughs> and so, I mean, Star Trek, right? Diversity. Talk about early. Oh, Totally, so Star Trek I had think, so much heart.
1: That's what I love about it. Yeah.
2: Yes, and it had a very, I think, utopian future, right? And, totally, and, and something that uh, we are still, um, still, still far from, but hopefully struggling, struggling to, toward. To it too. Yeah, exactly, but uh, but I think that I think it's so important to have you and Justin behind this project, knowing mm-hmm. that um, that Asian Americans are have um, vision. Behind it, as well as like you said, that caring about Bruce Lee's legacy and Bruce Lee's vision, and yeah. so um, I just love that the series highlights multiple Asian Americans. It's not just the single person, like a lot of Bruce Lee movies. Right. It was just Bruce Lee because maybe because also at the time, you know, there just wasn't enough room, right, for <laughs> a lot of Asian Americans to be on screen because then it's like foreign film, um, yeah. but. So,
1: No, I often I often say actually that that if this show had gotten made when my father was alive, he probably would have been the only Asian in the show, you know, so we got the opportunity through the timing to do this in a much richer and and authentic way.
2: Yeah cuz I I feel like Assam the the lead is probably the character that's most like your father but then mm-hmm. all the character and I don't know if you can talk about that if that's true I just read yeah. into it because he <laughs> kind of he, he does a lot of the the mannerisms right and um, and I love that and um but then all the characters are complex can you talk about what it's like to to be part of the creation of so many memorable Asian American characters, and how that either fulfills or even exceeds your father's initial vision. I'm sure
1: it exceeds his vision for sure, because you know his vision was was stuck in a 1970s um, you know set and setting. Um, of course, I'm sure he would have loved to have cast a ton of Asians. In the show, but I'm I I just know that that would have been you know as we already mentioned uh, probably not possible. They wouldn't even cast him. So <laughs> so I really feel like they they would not have gone um, that that direction. So in that way, I definitely think that the show exceeded his expectations. I think it really actually expresses him in a way that that 1970s episodic American television would not have been able to do at the time. It captures his energy and the action and, you know, um, and the drama and the rich conflict and characters um, that that uh, wouldn't necessarily have, we would have been able, he would have been able to do back then. So in that way, I think it exceeds him, uh, his expectations um, Or or maybe actually it, it meets his real expectations. <laughs> Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Um, but yes, I mean, to be able to be involved in creating such an amazing dynamic cast with so many rich characters. And as you said, you know, so the Assam character is a character that my father would have played if he had done, uh, this show. That said, you know, Andrew Koji does a beautiful job of, yes, there are these little Easter eggs and homages that we throw in for the Bruce Lee fans, which I think are great, but um, but he does such a great job of really embodying that character and bringing his own soul to it and his own talent to it in a way that, that has nothing to do with Bruce Lee. And, and in fact, that's what we were looking for because, I mean, Per my father's own philosophy, he was all about self actualization and not self image actualization. So he was like, you know, don't go out and copy someone else, be yourself, bring yourself to the process. And so, you know, when we were casting, that's what we were looking for. We were not looking for a copycat or an imitator or a lookalike. We wanted someone who had the soul and the energy, and of course, who could carry off the martial arts as well but who was gonna bring their own sense of self to the role, which I think Andrew does so beautifully. But really, I feel like my father is sort of sprinkled throughout all of the characters in the show, because I'm sure fans will notice that there are certain like philosophical lines that other characters will speak during the show. And, um, you know, and that's purposeful to sort of try to weave in philosophy as well, because my father did that. As well with his own projects, it was like great entertainment, but with just a little bit of like you know, throwing some from some philosophy, some some teachings, if you will, but not feeling like teaching at all. Just just great dialogue. And so, to be able to be part of this show has been—I mean—it's really just been such an amazing experience. I'm so grateful, and I and I really have to give. Um, credit to Jonathan Tropper too who is not Asian but is the writer and showrunner of our show and who who you know we did interview a number of Asian writers as well and the the crazy thing about Jonathan is he's a huge Bruce Lee fan and he's a black belt (laughs) so yeah right and so and he's an amazing and he's an amazing action genre writer and so we just we knew that that Justin and I were there to make sure that um, you know that the show carried the right tone um, and and Jonathan was an an excellent collaborator um, and creator in the process and I really credit him for creating such a dynamic world.
2: You also have some Asian American writers in the room, right? As yes. well as yes. director. I remember episode five in season one was both directed and written by Asian Americans. And that one was so, so good.
1: Yeah, that's like the standout episode of the season. Everybody talks about episode five, they love it. And yes, I mean, we we really wanted, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera as well, to, to try and, and be as inclusive as possible.
2: I think just you talking about how Bruce Lee was denied because quote unquote, he didn't, he spoke with an accent or whatever. I love how in that episode five, where Assam, like, you know, reveals that to, to Jason Tobin's character, um, that, <laughs> that, that he yeah, actually right. speaks English, right? Well, and they're all shocked. And, and I just, I think that that's so clever, right? To kind of, um, yeah. I don't know, was that intentional?
1: Well, definitely. I mean, the way that we use language in the show is is very intentional and and very um, uh, specific. So, you know, we assess one another so much based on language, which which I think a lot of times is a huge mistake. You know, it's just like looking at the color of someone's skin. It's like you you hear the way that they speak, and you automatically think, oh. That person's not smart, or that person's uneducated, or that person is, you know, whatever, whatever the, the thinking is. And in the show, we utilize language and different techniques in an interesting way. And, you know, when when different characters, you know, so first of all, the Assam character speaks fluent English, which is a surprise. It's a little bit of his secret weapon in the first season. And um, and Oh, and of course, like, you know, this, this assumption that we make that he wouldn't speak English, right? Is, it's just, it, we're constantly highlighting sort of the assumptions that people make about the characters and one another in so doing. And then, you know, in the opening episode, we use this technique where we show the, the characters in Chinatown speaking in Cantonese, but then the camera does this turn and the Cantonese turns into English and when they're speaking to each other they speak in english but they speak very colloquially very naturally very dynamically they have their own you know slang terms they have this way of relating to one another and but then whenever there's someone in the room that wouldn't be able to understand them you know they switch to chinese so that we're having the experience of the of the other characters as well or when they speak in English to some of the Caucasian characters, um, they speak with a little bit of a broken English accent because that's what they would hear. And it's just a interesting dynamic I think that the show creates to show us like how much language affects our perception.
2: I just love what you guys did there because it's whenever I, Um, whenever Hollywood casts Asians to speak in quote unquote China, you know, in Chinese, it's always accented. And I always get so annoyed. Like if they're in China (laughs) speaking, I guess, whatever translated Chinese, why would they be speaking in an accent? So I think it's so (laughs) clever that in Warrior, we get to hear everyone speaking their language fluently, right? In, In fluency. So and it is so clever, it's, it's exciting actually. And it's, it's more fun, I think too. And you don't, it, sure. it takes away the exotic element that can easily kind of go into, you know, a portrayal of Chinatown. Um, totally,
1: yeah, totally. And, I, and, I, and we wanted people to not have a barrier to relating to our characters, you know? and And we wanted them to be able to embody their own natural, way of communicating in the show. And so that was important to us.
2: So speaking of um, philosophy sprinkled throughout, let's look at another clip of uh, Warrior. Okay, great.
1: Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt.
2: I was just admiring your focus. Thank you. Young Jun can use a bit of that focus.
1: He's too easily riled up.
2: Uh, he's just looking out for
1: the tongue. <clears throat> I don't doubt it. I've been trying to teach him patience for years. The teacher can open the door, but the student must walk through it.
2: So here we see Father June uh, saying things that sound like Bruce Lee's philosophy, as well <laughs> as even seeing Assam uh, you know, um, doing martial arts that that is so reminiscent of not just Bruce Lee, but it man and um and so mm-hmm. that's definitely a, a whole easter egg <laughs> for yeah, for the that, fans uh, but could you yeah. just talk about uh, how you know how you, you you said a little bit about philosophy sprinkling yeah. in there what is what is um the purpose of kind of including some of the philosophies in warrior you
1: know my father did did that because it was in his own in his own projects because it was authentic to him and it was authentic you know a lot of the philosophies were authentic to his training and his culture also and he had a lot of Taoist background in philosophy um, as as well as as others but. Um, I think for Warrior because we want the show to carry the energy of Bruce Lee without like trying to imitate him. We want a the action sequences to be amazing, you know, and emotionally charged and character driven and Part of that is is having this philosoph- philosophy that is sprinkled in because that's true to the nature of Bruce Lee. It's it's true to the nature of the culture too. To you know, not not necessarily like. Everybody goes around spouting philosophy, but weaving in some of the some of the story, the, the, the storytelling and the ways of speaking and things like that that would um, also be culture, culturally relevant, which is what my father did also in his, in his projects. And so, you know, what he says, you know, the teacher can open the door, but the student has to has to come through my father talked about that himself all the time. He used to say, you know, I'm, it's not so much that people are paying me to teach them like how to hold their hand or how to da da da. da. I'm really just a signpost for a traveler who is lost. I'm just pointing the way. I can only show you yourself in combative form, but you have to embody that, you have to take that on. And so, you know, this is our way of like bringing that energy of Bruce Lee into the show also.
2: So most of us know Bruce Lee as, you know, the martial arts action hero. And, and a lot of us have seen, um, I think, just bits and pieces of his philosophy, like the footage of him saying, be water, my friend. And so mm-hmm. you have a new book coming out, or it's already out, actually, that's so- entitled Be Water, My Friend. And it's yeah. about the philosophies of your father. And can you ta- talk to us a little bit about uh, why you decided to write this book and, and what are you trying to share with the world?
1: Ooh, yeah. Um, so the book just came out October 6th. And, um, you know, my intention in writing the book was most definitely to share this side of my father with um, the world, really, because everybody knows Bruce Lee as the action hero, they know him as the martial artist, but they don't necessarily know the depth of his philosophical. Um, studies and practices. Because the beauty of my father was not just that he espoused philosophy, but that he actually applied philosophy to his life. He practiced the things that he talked about and lived his life that way. And the thing that I'm always trying to tell people is that the the reason he's so engaging when you see him on screen is because he had this foundation of deep self-work and practice. He didn't just train his body, he trained his mind and he trained his soul. And so that's why he's so magnetizing and so engaging because he can sort of, he could kind of like, he cultivated and then could direct his energy in a way that like really spoke of a, of a new level of possibility for for us as humans. And it all starts with the philosophy. And so for me, you know, this book, you don't have to be a martial artist to read this book. (laughs) You know, you don't have to be even a Bruce Lee fan to read this book, because the principles that I cover are really just in tune with the, the process of being a human being and how you can reach into yourself, look inward, know yourself, and develop your inner strength, your confidence, your, your potential, you know, and, you know, I mentioned before, he was into self-actualization, how to create the best, strongest, most joyful, peaceful version of yourself, and so this book is, you know, I wrote it because truly, my father's philosophies have um, healed and inspired and motivated me, personally, as a, as a human being, like separate and apart, I mean, yes, he's my father, but his words have reached out to me and guided me during very difficult times in my life. And I know a lot of people who have been touched and motivated and moved by his words. And so I, it's always been my mission to get this side of him out into the world more.
2: So as the CEO of Bruce Lee Foundation and your commitment to his legacy, can you tell us a little bit about what the foundation's purpose is?
1: Sure, so, so the Bruce Lee Family Companies are a whole series of companies and, then, and the Bruce Lee Foundation is our 501c3 public charity. Um, our mission is to just uh, provide access to my father's teachings. Um, we do museum exhibits, we have camps for kids. Um, we have, um, also try to give back through our social justice initiatives and, um, and then on the, you know, sort of business side, we create projects like warrior through our entertainment division. And we have, um, licensing and partnerships that we enter into with people for all kinds of products and awesome experiences and programs. So, you know, like I, like I said, you know, my, my goal in all of this um, has never been to like make cool t-shirts or to, you know, like, that's great. The t-shirts are awesome. I have a lot of them, but (laughs) I wear them all the time, but I have been touched and moved by him. His legacy to me is is meaningful and is of value to humanity. And I know that sounds like a grand statement, but but really it's true. I mean, um, if you read his words, if you delve into his practices and understand him in that deeper way, you start to see that he was for the cause of humanity. He was a humanitarian. He, he wanted people to be well. He wanted people to be joyful. He wanted people to experience equality. He wanted everyone to help one another and, and to live a harmonious life. And so, you know, yes, I, I run these businesses, but the purpose for me behind them is to just keep Bruce Lee out in the world and for people to get to know him. in a in a deeper way and to connect with him in a deeper way and then you know through our foundation and stuff to provide um, you know easy points of access to him for the
2: general public I think that your book is absolutely a continuation of that I loved reading it and uh, I think about um, how Bruce Lee broke so many stereotypes about you know Asians can't be powerful or Asians can't be the lead. Um, and in your mm-hmm. book, I think you take it even further. Just everything that you're saying, what the what the foundation is trying to do—not just sell T-shirts, but really get yeah. his kind of way of life out there, right? You you I think you point out how people even dismiss the fact that he's an intellectual because he's a martial artist, as if that's something that's, you know, like not compatible. Um, So can you talk about how Bruce Lee overcame stereotypes in his life and and through his philosophy and lessons we can glean from that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, You know, I mean, my father, uh, because my father believed so deeply in cultivating one's own self, Uh, there is no stereotype for that. (laughs) You know, a stereotype is a collection of preconceived notions that that someone holds and tries to shove people into. And he was not that and nobody is, quite frankly, like all every single one of us are a one of one. And if we work on cultivating ourselves to the best of our ability, then we are creating this singular work of art that does not exist anywhere else in the world. And so with that behind him, and, and I think because you know he was born in such interesting times and interesting circumstances, you know he was a quarter Caucasian and Uh, He lived, he was born in the United States, but grew up in Hong Kong. He lived through Japanese occupied Hong Kong. He uh, lived in a British colony that ruled a Chinese uh, province. Um, Like I said, his mother was half Caucasian. Um, He experienced prejudice and racism uh, throughout his entire life and was always being, having assumptions made about him. It's sort of like what I was talking about in the TV show with the with the language thing that we use, like how people make assumptions about people just based on something they hear or something they see without actually knowing the person and knowing where they come from and what they've been through and and you know what their lineage is or what they go back, you know, what they what they travel back to. And so, you know, I, I often say that, you know, the fact that my father was a martial artist, um nowadays maybe it seems like uh, you know, mar- kung fu is culturally relevant to ch- the Chinese. But not every Chinese person is a martial artist. <laughs> but my father was a sincere and dedicated martial artist. He loved martial arts first and foremost. Like, it was what he was about. And so that's what he brought, you know, and that's what he wanted to share. And he wanted to share himself as an authentic human being. And he wanted to make authentic connections with people. And so, you know, I think um, I think that, you know, there's so much that we can grasp onto from him. and And the point that I make in the book is not that I that any of us should be attempting to be Bruce Lee because that's an impossible bar to reach. And and it's not what he wants for us. He wants for us to all step into being ourselves and then also having care for one another as these precious one of one works of art that we are. And I'm not sure if I answered your question.
2: went. I was kind of just uh, totally I was just thinking about um, like what you said about that he didn't fit in perfectly anywhere because he was transnational um, Mm -hmm. and back and forth multiple times in a time when I think people I mean actually you know Chinese Americans did go back and forth um, a lot of times the laws did uh, influence that and and, and force people I mean to this day immigration if we need reform um, yeah. But I think that, um, yeah, that, but he seemed to also be at ease, he had this confidence. And yes. and perhaps it's the centering that you talk about in your book that he centered, um, not just in his martial arts, but in his kind of life philosophy and how he lives. And I, I just, um, like, I love this one part where you talk about how he uh, cultivated being seen as American by having beautiful handwriting and speaking grammatically well, and even like joking, right, learning how yeah. to joke. I, I, as a woman, I oftentimes find myself trying to joke and kind of do bro stuff with men in, in male spaces, right? In order to fit in, like you have to code switch, right? You have to kind of mm. figure out. And so, um, and I think that that talk about how, because you talk about how the be water philosophy, I, I think of it as kind of an adapt adaptation, right? To your environment that he was able to adapt so well yeah. to multiple environments. And I think that that helped him to overcome a lot of these stereotypes and racism. Yeah,
1: definitely. He was uh, most certainly and and most um, easily the notion of being like water is this notion of adaptability, of flexibility, of flow, of being able to, you know, move or flow around obstacles um, to be pliable, right? In, in your life. And I think you make an excellent point, you know, the, the the thing about him is that wherever he was, whatever he was going to um, engage with and take on, he wanted to do that to the best of his ability. So he was a person who believed highly in quality of effort, and um, and and trying to create sort of the best quality of end product as well, you know, for whatever he engaged in. So if it was writing in English, he wrote with beautiful handwriting and he expressed himself beautifully. My mom, they were both in the University of Washington together and my dad who had English as a second language would help my mom with her English papers. <laughs> because he studied it because he engaged with it you know he he wanted to be able to um, not just do things kind of to do them, but to do them with intention and to do them well. And that helped him to succeed. It helped him, like, as you say, with joke telling, like, you know, you know, you really understanding a language when you can tell a joke because there are subtle, you know, um, inferences and plays on words that you have to understand in order to do that. and, and Plus he had a huge sense of humor and he loved to laugh and he was a practical joker and all that kind of stuff. So it was natural to him. So he, he didn't take on anything that he didn't want to take on or that was not natural to him, but everything that he was called toward, he tried to do to the best of his ability. And that is what made him successful, you know, and yes, he understood, you know, he's a martial artist. And I try to make this point in the book. It's like A martial artist, if you think about them, like when they step into the ring or the octagon or whatever, um, immediately they have to be so aware. They have to be totally 100% focused on their opponent, what's about to happen. They have to have practiced a ton so that they have their tools at the ready and be able to take on whatever shows up. In the moment. And so I really think that that sense that he cultivated as a martial artist made it so that he could walk into an environment and be like, okay, what's, what's going on here? I'm taking it all in, I'm present, I'm aware, I'm ready um, and to encounter, you know, whatever this environment has to encounter.
2: Um, in your book, this is a kind of a nerd nerd out moment that I had with, you talk about like bowing and how, because yes. you talk about, you know, going to the ring, bowing before going to the ring and us as the mm-hmm. audience reading your book to bow in and that it's not, a, it's not deference, it's not like subservience, but actually intentionality. And yes. I was like, whoa, I never even thought of it that way. I, if I, ever, I mean, being Chinese American, I'm even, I mean, I immigrated here when I was five. So it's not like I'm, you know, completely like only in the United States. I never even heard of that. and. Yeah. I just, it's, it's, it's so great that you point out these kind of, and I think about even in warrior, when they bow before fighting, that that's what that is. It's intentionality and not subservience, so. Totally, totally. I mean, and, and this
1: is the thing, it's like people see people bow and they, they're they like, oh, they're kowtowing or they're whatever, you know? And it's like, no, 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 no. It's respect and it's intention. And when we train in martial arts, cause I've trained in martial arts uh, quite a bit, whenever you show up to the gym to work out, before you set foot on the mat, you bow in and it's because you are setting the intention of showing up fully, you know? And so, yeah, I love, I love the notion of taking that moment. It's an acknowledgement. It has nothing to do with subservience. If anything, it has to do with keen presence and awareness and, and, um, and, the full intention of, of, of being there and putting in your best effort.
2: And it's like two people bowing to each other, yeah. acknowledging each other, right? Because I think yes. in the United States when we see Asians, it's just Asians bowing to like, you know, a white person or something and that's it, <laughs> but it's actually supposed to be communal, right? It's supposed to yes. be- Yes, so,
1: well, that's the thing. It's also for, for each other as humans, you know, to like, to acknowledge one another you know and to say like i see you and i am and i'm approaching you with my full person and i'm acknowledging your full person as well
2: i love that i think the whole communal i've been thinking about how we need more community these days right we're in pandemic yeah. we are polarized as a society we're disconnected and yeah. in your book you talk about how to deal with negative thoughts that, um, you know, that, mm. again, many of us are struggling with that, yeah. whether it's grief, unemployment, fears of the future, um, what wisdoms can we draw from your father's philosophy to get through this time? Yeah, well, you
1: know, one of the things that I've, I, I say, have been saying, and, and I say in the book is that, you know, my father trained his body, like, we know, we see the muscles, you know, <laughs> he trained his body. Uh, very much and honed his body, but he trained his mind just as much. And he trained it, um, and this is something I think we can really take. So he trained it in many different ways, but um, he trained it to have that same pliability like water. And he trained it to be open and he trained it to be positive and he trained it to be solution oriented and Connection-oriented, and he had all sorts of sayings about, you know, like the mind is a is a fertile garden, and you can either plant weeds or you can plant flowers, right? Like, and I think that this is so important, this notion of mind training, because I think people tend to think people tend to be sort of at the mercy of their thoughts, and they don't necessarily think like, oh you know, maybe I could train my thinking in a particular direction, you know? And my father did that very um, proactively. You know, he trained towards positivity and optimism. Um, He said that optimism is actually a kind of faith. And, you know, we tend to think of optimism as like somebody who's walking around going like, oh, everything's great. But like to actually have the faith that you're gonna make it that you're gonna be okay in the midst of great challenge is faith and you can train that. You know, he said, put your mind on the things that you want and off of the things that you don't want, like meaning don't obsess and spiral and go down these loophole, you know, these rabbit holes um, about all the things that are wrong and terrible, you know? Um, acknowledge what's wrong, and then spend your time focusing on how can I change this? How can I how can I fix this? If you're struggling internally with, you know, depression or anxiety or any of those things, how can I help myself? How can I? Who can I reach out to? Who can I talk to? What? There's so much available nowadays, you know, online on the internet. Talks, books. um, You know, I know that there are things that cost money like therapies and and different things like that. And if you have the means for that, there's no shame in helping yourself. You are cultivating that amazing one of one um, piece of art that you are as a human being. And, you know, you want to sculpt that into the best shape that it can be so that you have that inner strength, that inner sense of self and confidence to be able to uh, uh, see your way through these storms that we are experiencing right now, because, you know, the times are unprecedented, you know, pandemics and you know, all of the, uh, you know, um, just issues in the world and of which there are many, <laughs> you know, and losing jobs and, and you know, and, and, and being in ill health and losing loved ones and going through loss and all of that, you know, reminds me that my, my father said that everybody wants to know the way to win, but nobody wants to learn how to lose. Mm. And the thing is, there is actually there can actually be a cultivated way to lose. There can actually be a way to, to lose with grace. We all experience loss all the time. And when we won't really look at it and fully acknowledge it and experience it and then grow out of it is when we are, you know, is when we are in stay in suffering. And, you know, I've been in suffering Many times in my life, I was in deep, deep suffering after my brother passed away and I didn't know how to survive that. And it was my father's words actually that pulled me, that just sort of like opened a, opened a doorway and cracked a light for me on, on the notion that I had to seek my own cure. I had to seek my own wellness in just in my soul. You know, and, and that um, it wasn't just going to be miraculously handed to me. And so we're all trapped in our homes right now, <laughs> not able to move about freely um, for the most part. Um, and when we're with ourselves, we're with our thoughts, and we need to figure out how to put those thoughts in, how to empty our mind, how to create space in our brains and then how to put those thoughts in a direction that is helpful to us.
2: In your book, you talk about um, meditation and mindfulness, which people are familiar with perhaps. I mean, I have to confess myself that I'm like, oh, you know, I'll try it. And then I'm like, there's too much going on and I can't focus, right? I love how uh, you talk about how your father Um, is really practical about it, that you could do it when you're jogging, you could do when you're walking around the house. And that kind of made me think like, maybe I will give meditation a a shot because (laughs) it it always felt like I can't sit in lotus position, (laughs) closing my eyes for so long. So can you talk about how, um, yeah, about how, how your father kind of just, you know, his philosophy is, even his philosophy and his doing these things are kind of uh, you know adaptable to our modern times.
1: Totally well this is the point right like it everything has to be artisanal for you like it'll it only works if it if it works for you you know what I mean like, And yes there are many people who, it does work for, for them to sit quietly in a particular position and and chant or do whatever they do, right? And that's great, that's awesome. But it doesn't, it's not as easy for many people, especially if you're a really active, kind of go, go, go type of person, it's hard to sit still. It's hard to like be in such closed quietness and stillness and, and, and try to calm your mind sometimes. And so my father, he very he he did sometimes sit still and meditate, but more so he meditated in motion because he was a man in motion all the time. And so I talk about how his morning jog was meditation time. And really, you know, or sometimes you just walk around the backyard and 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 ponder. And it's really just about giving yourself a mental break. You know, meditation, you know, in its simplest form, like let's not let's not talk about, you know, like uh, being able to touch emptiness or the living void or anything like that. Right. Like maybe that's the goal down the line someplace. But the whole purpose of quote unquote meditation is to give your mind the time to loosen and rest and and even sometimes I talk about it a little bit as daydreaming, but it's like a present daydreaming, you know? And, and it's just because your brain needs that space. Like when you're obsessively thinking your thoughts all the time and running these scenarios in your head and beating yourself up about the past and worrying about the future, um, your brain just feels like it's going to explode. know I'm sure everybody has this experience and so and so you know um it for me meditation is just about like where can I just go outside and take a walk and let my mind loose for a minute just not and when I feel myself obsessing about something just go like I'm not gonna obsess about that right now I'm gonna put my mind in a in a, in a hopeful place, in a wishful place, in a peaceful place. And you can do that anywhere, anytime. You can do it driving your car, you can do it coloring, you can do it, you know, sometimes reading can even just be meditative, listening to something soothing. So I think it's really important, especially right now, because that mental space, it can save your life.
2: Um, I love how you say that you use um, your father's quotes as a mantra for meditation. Because mm-hmm. I always think, like, okay, what can I chant? And I and I think for you that chant is so much deeper, right? It's, I think I want to start using that chant. But for you, this, like you said, it was your father's words that got you out yeah. of you know your grief or helped you you know deal with yeah. the grief of your brother's loss. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about how you came to start using. Um, So the mantra is empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water. It's so beautiful. And it's, you know, now it's like synonymous with, with your father. And just how did you come to, to adopt adopt that? And and what is it like when you're saying your father's words as a mantra into meditation?
1: I love um, saying my father's words because they're so poetic and and there and and when i really attempt to hold them with their meaning um, there is this energetic thing that happens so you know when i say the mantra empty your mind when i close my eyes i don't just say empty your mind i i say it and i attempt to do it at the same time so it's like empty your mind, you know, and just, and then I spend a minute, like emptying my mind, just like all those thoughts, like I talked about, just take them out, let them flow out, you know, and then it's like, be formless, shapeless, like water. So it's, so it's this notion of, I'm not just saying the words, I'm attempting to experience the words. And in the experience of the words, I'm so soothed. I'm so soothed by his words. You know, I mean, some of his words are a little bit more energetic, but, but like so many of these things, like when I would read my book, when I was writing the book and I would have to read through it for editing purposes, every time I would get to the end of the book, I would feel better. And it's the and it's the words these, this soothing effect of this encouragement this nurturing and also because yes the the word is like the words are like a sound bath to me and also for that particular one the be water quote um, I'm attempting to experience it and embody it as I'm saying the words and when you do that you really feel yourself start to like loosen up, like, oh, I am feeling formless. I am feeling shapeless. I'm feeling like I'm starting to flow, you know, like the energy that was all like balled up and stuck, you know, throughout the day starts to loosen up and I start to just, you know, allow this flow to start happening. And I kind of like to think of when he says empty your mind um, before, unless you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. Like I like to think of my brain almost as like this like sacred bowl. It's like, I'm emptying it out, I'm washing it out I'm filling it back up with water. It's feeling so much more fluid and taking the form of me because One of the things that I really talk about in terms of what it is to be like water is it is to be one's essential self. It is to feel one's own essence and energy or soul, if you will, and to
2: allow that to fill you like the empty cup. I just, I feel like I've just gone through a meditation listening to you talk about (laughs) <laughs> about how, to, how to actually chant these words and visualize, right? Because yeah. it's all about, and I think that um, just in like following you and following, you know, the, the legacy of Bruce Lee, your, your social media and everything, mm-hmm. how there's the vision, right? The vision of what it means to be authentically Chinese American, Asian American, because I think, you know, Bruce Lee is such a role model for so many of us mm-hmm. um, and yeah, we're just so excited to I think continue to see what you're doing with uh, with Warrior and with yeah. this book, Be Water, my friend. Um, we're just uh, yeah, we just thank you, thank you for for doing such um, an amazing job for so many. You know, not just Asian American community, but I think Bruce Lee has fans across the world, um, all sure. races. Um, And um, yeah, just um, uh, do you have any last words to share with us? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's always
1: such a pleasure to be able to share and and talk about this stuff um, and share my father's philosophies and projects. I mean, with Warrior, I I do just want to say, like, you know, uh, uh, one of the things that's so great is my father was so great at at finding authentic stories to tell too, and so. Yes, it's an action show. Yes, it's super fun and entertaining and stylish and, you know, has all of that going for it. But it's also telling us a story about American history and Chinese American history. You know, it's talking to us about, you know, uh, the Exclusion Act and immigration and the conflicts that, uh, and the way we treat one another. And it's sort of shining a lens on that. And so, you know, through all of the things that I do whether it's Warrior, whether it's the book whether it's the Bruce Lee podcast which a new season just, uh, just started of I'm, I'm always just trying to like continue to put this notion of like um, an authentic message of my father, of who he was, of what was important to him. But then also this like humanitarian message of, you know, as my father said, like under the sky, under the heavens, we are one family and we must treat each other as if we are family. And so, you know, that is sort of the end goal. I want nothing more than for people to be well, for them to be their best selves and live their best lives and seek their cures and, and to feel so good that they want everyone else around them to feel as good as they do. So thank you for your, for your thoughtful questions and your, and your love it, lovely conversation. I, I really appreciate the opportunity.
2: Thank you. I'm honored. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening to our conversation with Shannon Lee and Nancy Yoon. You can explore upcoming programming and help support our work at chicagohumanities.org. Follow us on social media at shyhumanities. humanities. Members and donors like you drive 100% of our free digital programming.